Well, good morning, everybody. Obviously, Pastor Kevin is not with us again once, uh, once again this morning. I'm sure most of you are aware as to why, but just in case some of you aren't, he, along with the team from our church, is in South Sudan, uh, some pretty gnarly areas from what I understand, and, and they're there preaching the gospel, ministering to people, uh, uh, proclaiming the good news as we're all called to do, so we certainly continue to pray for them. And uh, as Pastor Jim said this morning, he plans on being back here preaching next Sunday, so Lord willing, he will be doing exactly that. In the meantime, he asked if I would fill in, and I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to teach God's Word a number of times. It's always a, a very humbling but, but wonderful experience. Uh, but in full disclosure, I have to say, I don't know that I've ever quite been as intimidated as I am right now, <laughs> just being honest. And there's a couple reasons for that. The, the first is, when I think of the men who have stood in this pulpit, men that I look up to, men that I admire, men that I point to and say, that's what I want to be like, men that I love and submit to as my elders, men like Pastor Bill and Pastor Don, who between the two of them have something like over a century of pastoral teaching ministry, there's, there's a big part of me that's just sort of like, what in the world are you doing up here? Thankfully, God uses the weak things of the world for his glory, or I would not be up here, but The second reason, and this may sound a little counterintuitive, but the second reason is I love this church so much. This this isn't just sort of like a guest speaking thing for me. This is my church that I love. It's actually very difficult for me to express how much I do love this church. My wife, Andrea, and I and my two kids, Ryan and Bodie, we've been attending here now for about a year, but... uh, you know, from, a, from a, a lot of ways, it feels like we've really been here from the beginning. You guys have just opened us, uh, you know, welcomed us with open arms, made us feel, uh, felt like we're just a part of this family. I'm so thankful for that. So let me just, if, forgive me for being so effusive, but if you just allow me this moment just to say, certainly on behalf of my family in all sincerity, thank you. Thank you for being such a, a wonderful, loving, healthy, if it's okay to say, awesome church body. Uh, certainly proud to be a part of it. And thank you for the opportunity as a part of this church to be responsible for leading us in worship of the Lord and His Word this morning. And that is what we are going to do. So if you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't know exactly where that is, find the gigantic book in the Old Testament, Psalms. That's followed by Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's kind of funny. I, a lot like Pastor Pastor Kevin and Pastor Don, and pretty much... Anybody else who has ever stood at this pulpit, I uh, very much just sort of teach hand, you know, handful of verses at a time, just sort of taking my time expositionally teaching through books of the Bible. Uh, so this morning is going to be a little bit unusual for me because what I want to do this morning is I want to cover all of Ecclesiastes chapters 8 and 9. Don't worry, we're not going to be here for three hours or anything, but this is going to be a little bit different from what I am normally uh, used to, but... I pray, Lord willing, it will be beneficial, as today I want to talk about a tale of two wisdoms. And to set up where we are, since we're just sort of jumping into the middle of this book here together, uh, together chapter 8 really marks a, a pivotal change in this book. Basically, for seven chapters up to this point, Solomon, the guy writing this book, the, the king of Israel, the son of King David, He's been giving us his experiences of looking to anything and everything under the sun to provide meaning, purpose, and hope, only ultimately to be left depressed, 
concluding every single time that everything is vanity. It, it is all vanity. And by the way, I said looking to anything and everything under the sun. That is absolutely the, the key phrase to understanding this book, under the sun, because that's the perspective of this book. It is limited to what Solomon can figure out in this life by his own power and his own wisdom under the sun. And so now in chapter 8, he's going to begin offering his conclusions based on these experiments. And these conclusions basically fall under one main conclusion. And that is, this is where worldly human wisdom will ultimately lead. And where it leads, what this says to people is if your perspective is limited to what you can figure out in this life under the sun, this is what your life is going to look like. You're going to keep going in circles, you'll keep hitting dead ends, you're going to be like the guy in the maze who instead of utilizing the wisdom of the maze maker, he's just determined to figure his way out on his own power, but he never can, he can only ever see what's just right in front of his face, and so he keeps hitting the same dead ends. He, he never seems to be able to find his way out of the maze or even what the point of the maze is to begin with. So a tale of two wisdoms, and I hope that becomes clear as we go through this together. So let's get into this. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no, no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they're soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. So I committed pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been, been done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover." So you can see how he begins there with an absolute reliance on his wisdom. He, he praises the wise and wisdom in verse 1. He says, wisdom is so great it even changes how you look. It causes your face to beam. 
And he continues by listing the virtues of, uh, of wisdom, really holding up wisdom as the end-all, be-all, saying this is what a person should rely on in order to profit in life under the sun. And he goes on to give practical examples of how wisdom can effectively guide a person through life. In verses 2 through 5, he says, Wisdom advises the proper decorum in social situations, like how you would act before a king. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Wisdom can discern the right course of action to take in the events of life. But then, in saying that, he admits, actually, you know, there's a whole lot we don't really know. However wise a person says he is, he can't control the wind, he can't control his death date, he can't stop war if it's coming his way. It seems his mention of war prompts him to focus on evil in the world, specifically in verse 9, speaking about a a ruler horribly oppressing other people, going even further afield from the exaltation of wisdom that he began with. He delves further into the evil and futility of life in verse 10, where he refers to the subject of false worship, cites a, a wicked man who practiced his wickedness in a certain city, but then he also went up to the holy place to offer his sacrifice, But then he reminds us, regardless of that charade, he died, he was buried, and he was soon forgotten in the very city that he he had lived in. In verses 11 through 13, he concludes, it's your works. Whether you're good or bad, that's what determines your length of life, how well it's going to go for you in life. Of course, that's the philosophy of pretty much every religion outside of Christianity. But of course, he very honestly says in verse 14, actually, life doesn't always work out that way, does it? Often the righteous suffer and the evil have a good, so what gives? Well, he he doesn't really know. He doesn't really seem to have an answer here. So he concludes, as he does throughout this book, this too is futility. So he began the chapter by praising wisdom, saying that was the end-all be-all. That's what's going to provide all the answers in life. And then in 14 verses, he basically disproves his point, referencing some of the most ubiquitous and confusing things that take place in this life that wisdom actually has no answer to at all. But he doesn't really seem to know where to turn. He's hit a a dead end here. He's exhausted the limitations of his own wisdom, but he still desires answers. So verse 15, he falls back on the same advice that he's delivered twice before in chapters 2 and 3. Enjoy your life. Eat, drink, be merry. That's what's going to sustain you in your toils under the sun. Then in verses 16 and 17, he gives this honest statement, really, again, contradicting the beginning of the chapter, saying, despite employing the full faculties of his immense wisdom, remember, this is Solomon, this is the wisest man ever to live, he exhausted his wisdom night and day exhaustively, he determined man just simply cannot make sense of life under the sun. And even if the wise man says he has the answers, like he began the chapter saying, There are just too many contradictions in this life that just don't make sense. He can't know. He can't figure it out with his own wisdom. No one can figure out the point of or the way through this often seemingly confusing and pointless maze of life. So we have a very truthful, albeit pretty depressing conclusion of Solomon's. But we continue on with him in the chapter 9 where he says, For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the, hands, uh, in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or, love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. 
For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have, have they any longer a reward for their memories forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in, in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might, for there's no activity or planning or wisdom in shale where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this, I came to see his wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man's despise, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So here we, we see Solomon going even further from his reliance on wisdom. He says, actually, if you're wise, it doesn't really matter because everyone's fate is the same. So he began chapter 8, it seems like, with a whole lot of hope and wisdom. And now he's entering despair and hopelessness as he concludes, what's the point? Whatever you do, it, it doesn't really matter because everyone's evil and then you die. And then continuing on with that reasoning in verses 4 through 6, he really offers the depressing conclusion of an atheist. It's all about this life, because once you die, it's all over. So he concludes, it's better to be despised and alive than revered and dead, because, hey, at least you're still alive. And that has to be, I think, one of the most depressing conclusions anybody could ever come to. I mean, if your only hope is limited to just staying alive in this terrible, difficult world with all of its suffering that he has so vividly explained in this book, I don't think that's something to rejoice in. I, I think that's terribly depressing. And again, it's also very contradictory because back in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, reflecting on all the oppression in this world, he said, So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil, evil activity done under the sun. So you're sort of left asking, well, which is it, Solomon? And this is what I meant at the beginning. If you're in the maze of life with your only hope being what you can see in front of your face, well, you're just going to keep running into dead ends. Or you're going to keep circling back to the same conclusions, contradicting yourself as you're just relying on your own wisdom and emotions. Case in point, verses 7 through 10, once again, he relies on the same advice he gives multiple times in this book. Be happy. Enjoy what you have. Wear, wear clothes with oil on your head, not black clothes of mourning with ashes on your head. Enjoy your spouse. Work hard in, in whatever you do. Be as happy as you can in your fleeting life because, again, it's all over when you die. 
But even though he consistently relies on this conclusion, again, we find him inconsistent in verses 11 and 12, that even this is difficult because we never actually know when we're going to die. Just because things happen to be going really great right now doesn't mean it's going to finish off that way. Our lives can be cut off at any point. We, we have no idea when that's going to happen. So pulling both of these chapters together in verses 13 through 18, he concludes with this story about his cherished wisdom really being the answer to life tries to show it's superior even to strength as he tells the story of a a small city surrounded by an army, physically helpless, and they were saved by this poor wise man through his wisdom. But as superior as his wisdom may be, as the story illustrates, often the wise man's ignored, and ultimately it only takes one sinner, one fool, to ignore wisdom and destroy all the good it's done. And in the end, that wise man too dies, and he too is forgotten by everybody he lived with in the city. Okay. Are you exhausted? I mean, what we just did right there, that was exhausting. This is what the wisest man of his time, maybe the wisest man ever concluded based on his experiments under the sun. A bunch of inconsistent, contradictory, hopeless dead ends. This is his advice. These are his conclusions. That's why the view, to life, the view of life limited to under the sun is so terrible. Because like I said, it's, it's exhausting, it's inconsistent, it's contradictory, and ultimately it only leads to hopelessness, despair, and meaninglessness. Yet, yet, how often can we be like this too? How often do we feel hopeless and defeated when we meet dead ends? We end up stuck and can't really see beyond what's in front of our faces and we don't know why we're here or what the way out is. How is it possible that we, unlike Solomon, who live in the complete revelation of Jesus Christ and his word, really, if we're honest, we can share a lot of these same conclusions with Solomon. It really shouldn't be, but if we're honest, like I said, often it is so often in response to some of the most difficult and confusing times in our lives, we can almost respond like the unsaved. Just kind of start grasping and groping and stressing and we're filled with anxieties. We begin to, to trust ourselves again and we begin to react based on what we can see, what we can accomplish. And when we do that, even as servants of Christ, really we're still just looking to our own wisdom to make sense of this life, even as we might be saying that we're trusting God. And so that reality means that we need to continually be reminded of what true wisdom is. Now, we've referenced wisdom a lot this morning. That's what Solomon said he was relying on. But it's not the wisdom that's wrong to rely on. It's where the source of that wisdom comes from. It's whose wisdom we're trusting in, in whom we're trusting. And if it's us, if it's our wisdom, if it's the wisdom of this world, well, that's just wrong. We're not told by God to go through this life relying on our own wisdom. Like Solomon makes perfectly clear, our wisdom is painfully limited, often self-centered, impotent, erratic, weak, and it only leads to the conclusions that we read with Solomon here. In fact, usually all our wisdom does, and I'm sure some of us have firsthand experience with this, usually all our wisdom does in trying to answer the stressful, despairing times in our lives is just compound the stress, and despair. So that's not where we want to look. So whether things are going really great right now or things are going horribly terrible right now, we as servants of Christ, we, not, we do not want to be guiding our lives 
by our own wisdom. We only ever and always want to be guiding our lives by God's wisdom, by biblical wisdom. So then, the obvious question is, what then is God's wisdom? And before we get there, it most certainly begins by recognizing the things that we might be trusting in instead of God. Sort of taking stock of our lives and saying, well, you know, if I'm honest, actually, I kind of have my faith and trust in my salary, my bank account, my health, this person, whatever it is. So we kind of want to take stock of that. But of course, we don't want to just identify those things, but we want to turn from those things, eradicate those things from our life and turn completely to Jesus Christ and his word and trust him in everything. And that right there is as practical as it gets, because this life we live as believers is a life of faith. Hebrews tells us it's impossible to please God without faith, which means every single one of us just desperately needs this. And that's why I think, I love this book. Ecclesiastes is so awesome. There's so much great stuff in here. But I think this is one of the most practical lessons in this entire book. I obviously don't know what's going on in every single individual life in this room. But I'm willing to bet maybe a few of us are confused depressed, anxious, maybe discontent. just seems like the ever-shifting sands of life, they, they never stop. We may feel like we're in that maze. We sort of keep hit, hitting dead ends. We keep going in circles. We feel stuck. We don't know what to do. We don't know the way out. If you don't feel that way right now, brace yourself. It's probably coming. Most of us, at some point, we find ourselves desperate and looking for answers, and I truly hope and believe that we will get some of those answers this morning, and really it's one main answer. So as we find that answer together, we need to ask and answer, what is divine, godly, biblical wisdom? How do we access that, and how do we continually employ that in our lives? Is basically what I want to spend the rest of the morning doing. And we begin by recognizing that divine wisdom is a gift from God that we should seek. In other words, it only comes from God, and he tells us to seek it. If you think about what's maybe resulted in your own life, as you've relied on your own wisdom, you realize what an amazing gift it is that God actually gives us access to his perfect eternal wisdom. And God's word has quite a bit to say about acquiring this gift For example, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, from one perspective, are basically one long admonition to seek wisdom, such as as Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all your understanding, get understanding. In 9, 4 through 6, wisdom is personified. It says, wisdom says, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come eat of my food and drink of the wine I've mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. We're, we're invited to seek wisdom from God, and he's ready to grant that to all who ask. Of course, that truth is repeated in the New Testament. Places like James 1.5, it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if we recognize wisdom as being a gift from God, and we're told to seek it, then how exactly do we seek it and find it? And there are two primary ways. The first is we fear God. Dr. Jim actually read that this morning. We're told multiple times in Old Testament wisdom, wisdom literature, such as Psalm 111.10, Proverbs 1.7, 9, 10, 15.33, Job 28.28, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And I'm, I'm afraid maybe, I don't know, trying some in trying to, I don't know, fit God into sort of like a passive God of love. I've heard some people kind of soften the meaning of what that means and basically say, well, it means respect. It's sort of synonymous with respect. And it certainly does include that without a doubt. But that's just part of it. Because God's not only love, but he's also holy. He's fearfully holy. And those who have ended up in his presence, like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, or Peter in the fishing boat, or John in Revelation 21, it's not just that they respected God. They were in fearful awe of him. And it's not just a cowering fear. If you're saved, you've been adopted by our amazing God in love. But I'm afraid often as Christians, we lose this fear of God and we have a tendency to treat him with irreverence. Too often we can sort of treat him like our homie who's there to hook us up when we need him. But other than that, we're just kind of going through our lives. And if that's the case, Scripture tells us we're not going to have wisdom. Because wisdom begins by recognizing our creatureliness, our finiteness, our sinful depravity, and that it would be foolish to ever rely on ourselves, certainly in comparison to our holy, awesome, perfect, infinite, powerful God. The second way we seek God's wisdom is in his word. Even if we have that proper fear. We're not just sort of magically downloaded with wisdom. God makes it clear that his wisdom is found in his inerrant, infallible, breathed out word. For instance, Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. So if we desire God's wisdom and direction in our lives, there's really one place to look, and that's his word. And that means it's incumbent upon us to prioritize that in our lives. Make sure that we are spending time with God studying his word. And and that becomes a whole lot easier to do, a whole lot easier to prioritize in our lives rather than just being, I guess I'll do this, is when we realize time spent studying God's word is time spent with the creator and sustainer of this universe. It's time spent loving him more, getting to know him more, falling in more awe of, of him. What an amazing gift it is that He gives us his word. So God's wisdom is a gift that we're to seek. We know now how to seek it. So what exactly is it that we're seeking? I asked what is divine wisdom. Haven't really answered that question yet. I'm not going to answer it quite yet because I want to first talk about what biblical wisdom is not. And the reason why I want to do that is because often... There are many people who actually think what biblical wisdom is is actually what it's not. I began today by comparing life to a maze. I've referred to that analogy throughout. There's a, I'm sure many of you have seen, there's a trend uh, around this time of year, kind of leading up to Halloween, you know, not necessarily around here, but places where they still have cornfields, where people will build, build these gigantic life-size mazes in these cornfields. And, of course, corn stalks go way up here. So these, these are adult-sized mazes. Some of these things are acres and acres big. Some of these things are huge. And last year, about this time, I, I saw this video of these two college football players, you know, kind of big, studly guys. I don't remember. It might have been in Nebraska or something. I don't remember where. And they, they went into one of these mazes, and the one guy, he just, he just took off, and he was having a great time just running through there. The other guy, he didn't get too far, and he realized that he was just kind of hitting the same dead end, kind of going to the same place every time, couldn't figure his way out through this maze. And after a while, this guy just hit the panic button. He bolted right through that maze. He just said, forget this maze. He, just, he ruined the maze. He just went right through the maze, back into the open air again, and just, you know, eyes this big, just 
freaked out at the thought of, I'm stuck in here and I can't figure a way to get out. But you know, if you took that same big stud and and you put him in a helicopter and you just hovered right above that maze, well, he would look down and he would go, oh, all I had to do was just go right there. I kept, oh, and then it would just make perfect sense. And this stressful, panic-inducing situation all of a sudden would be no big deal whatsoever because the whole overall plan would just be laid right out in front of him. And that's where the problem comes in. Because often we have a tendency to think that's what it means to have godly wisdom, that we will have deep insight into the providential meaning and purpose of the events going on in and around our lives, that we will see and understand why God is doing a certain thing. And often when we can't see that, we can have a tendency to feel like we're doing something wrong. We're, we're not trusting God. Maybe we're on the wrong path to begin with. Maybe that's why things aren't working out. But if we could just go to God, well, then he'd give us his wisdom. And then all of a sudden, we'd sort of be in the helicopter over, overlooking the maze of our lives. And it would all begin to make sense how God is doing all these things for his providential purposes. But because we're not in the helicopter, we're just sort of left constantly trying to decipher with our own wisdom, a lot like we read with Solomon, why God is allowing this certain thing to happen. Maybe this is a sign that I'm supposed to keep going. Maybe it's a sign I'm supposed to turn around and go the other way. But ultimately, like Solomon, we're really just kind of left baffled. And we think if we could just acquire God's wisdom, well, then we wouldn't be baffled anymore. And we can literally drive ourselves to exhaustion and depression by this. Well, certainly God's word makes it clear that he's in providential control of absolutely everything. And at times he does make it clear or at least clear why he does certain things, what his purposes are. Occasionally he may even give us a sign to confirm his plan in our lives. There are examples of that in scripture. Maybe some of you can cite examples in your own lives. I'm not going to stand up here and say God can't do that, won't do that, doesn't do that. I wouldn't say that. But the problem is that's, that's really the exception more than the rule. But even though it is the exception, for many times, that's what we're actually seeking when we say we're trusting in God. I mean, how many times have we prayed things like, and I'll be the first to raise my hand, God, just give me a sign. Just, just make this apparent to me. Just throw up some sort of road marker so I have some idea I'm heading in the right direction because I'm, I'm totally confused and I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. And although that's often what we're seeking because we think that's what God's wisdom in our lives is, that actually is not what God's wisdom is. God does not promise that he's going to give us all the answers, and he doesn't tell us our job is to spend our time seeking all the answers. That's not seeking God's wisdom, and we're not somehow less spiritual because we don't have that helicopter view, so we just need to keep striving to get that. That's actually not what we should be seeking. So what is divine wisdom then? What is godly biblical wisdom? Well, it's found right here in the book that we're studying, right here in these chapters that we're looking, about, looking at. Although many of Solomon's conclusions have been all over the place, and he's often depressing, he's spot on in one way. Solomon makes it perfectly clear that human wisdom couldn't figure this life out because so much of what happens in life makes absolutely no sense to us. 
Now, unfortunately, up to this point, he hasn't gone beyond his wisdom, so he's just left with those depressing conclusions. But really, that is, is uh, part of the key to living this life in godly wisdom. Living a life with God's wisdom doesn't mean seeking all the answers. It doesn't mean applying some Christian cliche to all of life's difficulties. Actually, it means that we'll agree with Solomon, that the world often does look exactly like he describes. Again, if we're taking the perspective of this book, limited to life under the sun, what we can figure out with our fallen, finite human brains, it often seems that the God who rules every molecule of this universe is nowhere to be found. Often the, the world does look like a God of providence isn't in control of it. The, it regularly looks like the good suffer and the evil triumph. It regularly looks like there's no rhyme or reason to what's going on. Now again, that's not the truth. We know the exact opposite is true. I would love to spend weeks talking about God's providence and sovereignty. But again, with what we're addressing, with what Solomon says here, when it comes to wisdom, we agree with Solomon that, yes, from our perspective, what we can figure out, a whole lot of life just doesn't make sense. Now, that makes some people uncomfortable to say, almost feels sacrilegious. Maybe some of you are kind of tensing up just hearing me say that. Because a lot of times, Christians, we feel like, no, we're, we're supposed to be having that helicopter view. But guys, if that's your perspective, you're in danger. Because a person who feels that way, I promise you at some point in your life, something is going to happen, and you're going to have no clue why. You're going to have no answer for it. And if that's the case, you're in danger of being rocked and confused and maybe ending up angry at God. I've seen that happen in too many people's lives. That's one of the problems with thinking that's what godly wisdom is. Really, it's exactly like seeking after human wisdom because it's still relying on us. It's still about us having all the answers. And if that's how we're going to choose to go through life, chances are we will end up in very similar places as Solomon, Christian or not, because again, that's not what God has promised us in this life. That's not godly wisdom. That's actually human wisdom in the name of God. It's human wisdom that seeks all the answers. It's human wisdom that seeks to be in the helicopter functioning like God. And so that finally leads to what godly wisdom is. We're not to seek the answers. We're not to seek to be in the helicopter. We are to seek Him. We're to seek Him. That's what godly wisdom is. God in His wisdom is in complete providential control of this world and in complete providential control of every detail of our lives. Yet He often will give us no clue whatsoever what His purposes are along the way. And the reason is not because He's mean. And it's not because he wants us to spend our entire lives trying to figure out the answers like this life is some sort of a big cosmic Easter egg hunt. It's because he wants us to humbly walk in childlike faith in complete trust of him. He wants us to trust him, not the answers. Trust him, not our circumstances. Trust him, not a little roadmap he's given us with every single answer we'd ever want to know. I said a little while ago, I thought this was one of the most practical messages of this entire book. I hoped many of us would find the answers that we might be looking for in this crazy confusion of our lives. And here's the answer. Stop seeking the answers. 
Stop stressing because you don't have the answer. Stop thinking you're somehow doing it wrong because you're in this situation and you don't know why. Stop all of that and start trusting him. Trust him not to get the answers uh, from him, but to know him more. Even if you're at that same dead end, even if you've been down this path before, trust him because that's what godly wisdom is. That's what we should seek and that's what he generously gives as that is what part, at least part of what he uses to bring us into deeper relationship with him. God doesn't sanctify us. He doesn't conform us into the image of Christ. He doesn't move us us into deeper fellowship with him by making us like him in that we have all the answers. That's not actually what it means to be conformed into his image. We become wise, we gain his wisdom when we proclaim him to be wise and us to be fools. And as a result, we cling to him and his word and we trust in him and his word in all things because our faith is in him, not in our knowing all the answers and far more than desiring answers. We desire him. And by the way, the the fruit of this How desperately we want the fruit of this. I know I do. The ways we benefit, of course, in addition to knowing him more, which is the greatest benefit any of us could ever receive, is that he graciously gives us what we so desperately want. Listen to James 3.17. It says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, God's wisdom that he gives us through his word when we trust him yields fruit that makes us more joyful, less depressed, more faithful, less faithless, more peaceful, less troubled, more merciful, less selfish, more like Christ, less like us. For it is Christ, Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that, finally, is the key to all of this. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Listen to this. Salvation is not some sort of like detached gift that, that God kind of gives us. Salvation is found in Christ. And what I mean by that is Christianity is not a philosophy of religion. It's not just a, a set of beliefs and practices. It, practices. It is that, and we have to have right belief in order to be saved, but it's not just that. It is in and through a person, Jesus Christ. And if you're saved, you are in him, which is the phrase Ephesians chapter 1 uses over and over. But what does that have to do with wisdom? Because our trust in God is anchored in the promises of his word, and his promises are anchored in his person through Christ as displayed in the cross and the resurrection. Scripture says that over and over. For instance, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So our faith, our trust in God, that's not wishing upon a star. It's anchored in the cross and the resurrection, and it is anchored in who God is through Christ, and he is perfect, he is faithful, he is full of grace, and as such, he cares for you, he loves you, 
He invites you to the throne of the Father through him. He prays for you. He has promised you that your entire existence is anchored in him. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be anxious about if you are in him. And when we realize that, our salvation isn't just this this thing given to us, but it is in Christ himself. Well, then we live lives that are Christ-dependent, Christ-driven, Christ-honoring. He truly becomes our all in all. And when that is true, we no longer are focused on our wisdom trying to figure this life out because we are consumed with him, which leads to a radical, dependent trust in him in all things. Because we're not only recipients of God's wisdom through his word, We're recipients of Christ, the Word, who is our wisdom. He's our life. He's our strength. He's our peace. He is our wisdom. We not only receive his wisdom, but we receive him as in salvation. We're in him. A tale of two wisdoms. Knowing the fruit that results from these two different types of wisdoms... Which would you rather? The fruit of the wisdom of the world, which Solomon makes very clear. I'm sure many of us have experienced that personally. Or the fruit of godly wisdom. And of course, I know the answer to that question. If you're here and a believer, I assume you desperately desire to live your life according to godly wisdom. But this is, this is the beautiful thing. I hope what we can leave knowing today is it's right here. It's, it's not a secret. God has graciously offered it to us, and he's told us exactly how to seek it. So when you feel stress and fear and anxiety creeping up from the crazy, scary, shifting circumstances of life, and you just kind of start floundering, or maybe you're the kind of person you're just going to go to fixing this thing and, and figuring your way out of this by your own power, stop. Stop trying to to fix and run your life by your power and your wisdom. That's not what your loving Father has called you to. Let's stop seeking and relying on that wisdom, and let's start seeking and trusting the wisdom God has promised those who ask by simply surrendering all to him and trusting him. Trade your worry, fear, and confusion in for the faith, security, and peace that is only found in Christ. Seek him with your entire being through his power. Acquire his wisdom that finds its, its joy and security in being completely bound to him in intimate fellowship that leads to a life of extraordinary faith in him. And of course, it's his power that does all that in us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, our holy Lord. You are so full of grace and mercy. What an amazing gift it is you, you have saved us, that you have given us salvation. And, and amazing, as amazing as that is, and, and we will literally praise you for that for eternity, we are so thankful that you didn't just save us and leave us, leave us to flounder around in this life. But you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit to guide us. And so, Lord, with whatever is going on in the lives of those of us here today, no matter how good or bad, May we just simply trust you as your children in all things. May we not seek to know the answers, but may we seek you and discover more of the riches that we've received from you in Christ. Amen.